This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. With its barbecues, new Cadillacs, and $4,000 snakeskin cowboy boots, Texas is all about power and money, and the power that money buys. In his new book, Follow the Money, How George W. Bush and the Texas Republicans Hogtied America, our guest today, sixth-generation Texan John Anderson, paints a jaw-dropping and damning picture of the money-laundering, underhanded deal-making, and dirty politics that made their way from Texas to Washington, D.C., Anderson is the former deputy editor of American Lawyer magazine and author of two other widely praised nonfiction books, Burning Down the House and Art Held Hostage. John Anderson, welcome to Weekly Signals. Well, I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you. How are you today? I'm very well. It's a, a warm day on the East Coast today. I feel it could almost be in Texas. <laughs> oh, very good. Almost. Now, <laughs> now, now you're sixth generation Texan. What do you what do you think you're uh, your ancestors would say about the current state of affairs there politically and, and what's happened to the country. Well, I think they'd be perplexed. The, the, the first Anderson set foot in Texas before the revolution, as they say in Texas, before the, the Texas Revolution, set foot in Texas in the 1830s. Um, and I think they would be perplexed to see the, the Bush clan, who are parvenus, uh, being uh, seen as somehow uh, the face of. Texas and, and the new century. Well, do you think that uh, the year 1994 was what really turned things around, or did you feel something happening before then? No, I think 1994 was the turnaround year, and it wasn't just the turnaround year in Texas. It was uh, a confluence of events in Texas and in Washington, and really across the, the nation, because um, you know, in the in the lead up to 1994, I mean, all uh, the main government institutions in Texas were in the hands of Democrats. The lieutenant governor, who was a very powerful figure in Texas, the Speaker of the House, the uh, Supreme Court, both houses of the legislature, they were all Democrats. Yeah. And in Washington, of course, going into the November 1994 election, uh, the Democrats controlled the, the House, but this, this turned out to be the year of Newt Gingrich's cleverly uh, named and contrived contract with America, this appeared when the Clintons were behind the eight ball over gays in the military and Hillary's failed health care reform. Uh, and behind Gingrich's uh, uh, contract with America, which was clever and smart, uh, the, the Republicans rolled into power again. And they gained control of the House, the Senate, and in Texas, the governorship, where a very callow, um, seemingly unelectable George. W. Bush was now the governor. Yeah. And this is over Ann Richards, who... I, was I, a popular governor. Yeah, I, I'd always remembered her in California. I thought she, she had it pretty much, uh, well, wrapped up. I, she seemed like a very popular governor. She seemed very charismatic. Uh, what happened in that campaign? And Is this how we uh, track back to Karl Rove? Well, to some extent. I mean, Rove was running Bush's campaign, and he saw in the, the young George Bush... A seemingly affable guy with um, a popular, a well-known name, and uh, a connection to uh, corporate money, 
and Ann Richards, who was a very popular governor of Texas and was about as liberal as a governor could be in Texas, she made some mistakes. I mean, Ann, um, foolishly, as many would later, underestimated Bush, although she certainly shouldn't have underestimated Rove. Mm -hmm. And she made mistakes in the campaign. I mean, she uh, notably sort of dissed him in, in, in one of the, the campaign appearances, and this was thought to be unbecoming of a lady. Well, she was a, she was a tough, you know, she's a tough Texas lady. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, then the, the Rovian, or certainly Rove-inspired one, one thinks it must surely have been, because it was an echo of the later Bush uh, campaign for president against McCain in, in South Carolina the innuendo began to spread, and spread particularly in Baptist, conservative East Texas, which Baptist and conservative, but, but historically populist East Texas. Mm -hmm. The rumor that you know, um, um, Ann Richards uh, had uh, black boyfriends. Ann Richards was a lesbian. Well, this is kind of an interesting ju juxtaposition <laughs> yeah. there, black boyfriends and lesbians. But it, it took hold. And in those very conservative, very Baptist East Texas County, something else took hold. Um, as, as Bill White, who's now the mayor of Houston, is the sort of the, the shining light of the Texas Democrats today, was in those days the chairman of the Democratic Party. And he well remembers traversing the mighty state, because mighty it is. You know, mm -hmm. Texans live on their highways. Um, and, and being assaulted everywhere he went by the voice of Rush Limbaugh. And White now thinks that that was one of the critical um, junctures in the, in the race, too, because this was the first race uh, in Texas on a statewide basis where the impact of talk radio and Rush Limbaugh had um, a really massive effect. Mm -hmm. We're speaking with John Anderson. The book is Follow the Money. Mike? I just have one uh, kind of obscure um, um, factor in, in, in all this. The, the Republicans did very well across the board in 1994. We know that uh, traditionally in an off-year, uh, non-presidential year, the, in, the party in power does lose seats, but this was a, a tidal wave, if you will, for the Republicans and across the country. And my, I've always contended that one of the reasons that they won was money. Republicans traditionally have an advantage when it comes to money. But in the year 1994, we had a, a Senate race here in California in which Michael Huffington ran. Oh, yeah. and, and he put $50 million of his own money. And I believe Huffington is, is he a Texan? I, I know he's an yeah, oil man. Texas oil man. Texas yeah. oil man, which also reinforces my, my theory here, which is when you take $50 million out of, out of the a national campaign that the Republicans didn't have to spend any money in California, which is sort of the crown jewel of, of the American electorate system, then you were able to disperse your, rev, your resources much more effectively across the country, meaning that you can spend them in the marginal um, congressional races across the country and in a few key states for Senate and, and governor. I, I think that's um, a very apt point. I mean, the other thing that was going on in Texas was the rise of the so-called, and I really my, my do emphasize so-called, uh, tort reform lobby. Yeah. Um, and these were uh, largely backed by the big tobacco, which, had, which was trying desperately to fend off the, the, the challenge of the trial lawyers, the tobacco lawyers, as they call them in Texas. Yeah. And the money was being 
poured overwhelmingly into um, Republican um, statewide campaigns, particularly in the, in the Texas legislature, yeah. through a front group called Texans for Lawsuit Reform. Yeah. And what these guys very cleverly realized was that the tort lawyers, the trial lawyers, the tobacco lawyers, were the principal source of Democratic funds. And they intended to supplant them. And, and, and over time, this is exactly what's happened. Texas is now you know, one of the most tort, unfriendly states in the, in the country. I mean, lose a limb to malpractice, your lawyer turns out to be a bum, well, your, your home is badly flawed by some you know, uh, uh, bad uh, home builder. Um, buddy, you're up the creek. Yeah. And uh, in, in doing this, they've, they've reversed the paradigm so that today... It's the tort reformers, quote-unquote, who dominate the uh, political uh, gift-giving in Texas, and to the tune of about three times what the lawyers give. Well, and you hear echoes of that in the presidential race with John Edwards that he's referred to quite often in his sort of— Yeah, in in a very derisive way as a trial attorney, trial lawyer. So this is— yeah. Well, once once uh, the Republicans got control in Texas, what you know besides the tort reform, what else did they do? Were they poised? Did they have a plan? Well, you know, I think that's the the, the fascinating thing in many ways is that the Bush, who governed Texas, um, seemed at the time to be a, a moderate uh, conservative, and there is a reason for that. People ask me, so you know, why? Was Bush perceived as uh, a compromiser in Texas, a guy who was willing to compromise, who was willing to sit down with the Democrats in Texas, and is this adamant, uh, adamantly take no prisoner, uh, you know, charge hard against the Democrat president? Well, it, there is an answer, which is that, that, that when Bush came in as governor, first of all, he had to deal with, under the Texas has this very bizarre constitution dating from Reconstruction days that is still in effect and has, has something like 500 amendments, some enormous number of, and many of them silly amendments. Um, it's, it's such that the governor has very limited powers. All the, the, There isn't a governor's cabinet. The lieutenant governor it can actually be more powerful than the governor, and the Speaker of the House is a powerful character. And these were all Democrats. And, mm-hmm. and they were, in fact, wily Democrats. There was a guy named Bob Bullock who was the lieutenant governor, and he was a tough-as-nut, old-line <laughs> dem. And basically, Bush came to a, and Rove came to a modus vivendi with this guy, which is, you know, give us some of the things we want, like tort reform, and we'll let you run the state. And, and so for um, the majority of George Bush's governorship for the first four years, Texas was was run jointly by Bush and by Bullock. And if if the George Bush governorship seemed to be a moderate governorship, well, it was, because it was, uh, it was um, uh, uh, a cohabitation, as the French say. It, it had to be. It had to be. And, and there is another reason, and there is another reason, which is there was no Dick Cheney. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's really the key. There yeah. was no Cheney. Uh, come 2001, it's a different story. Yeah. So Cheney is the catalyst that turns Bush into the take-no-prisoners president? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. We're speaking with John Anderson. The book is Follow the Money. And you were just going to say? Well, I think um, people 
forget that when George um, W. Bush was elected, or everyone wants to look at it, um, willed his way into the presidency in 2000, came in in 2001, that the margins were always very slim. I mean, not only had Bush lost the popular vote to Gore, arguably he lost Florida to Gore, uh, but that's, that's another issue. Um, but the, the numbers in, in the Congress were, were absolutely marginal. The Senate was 50-50 Democrat and Republican. And again, it was Cheney who allowed the Republicans as vice president to organize the Senate as a Republican body. And in the House, um, Tom DeLay, even though his title was whip, even though you have another one of my Texans uh, who (laughs) has a prominent role, I might say, in this book, Tom DeLay, who's it's fascinating because DeLay, like Cheney, um, had the inferior title. I mean, not only was he not the speaker, he wasn't even the House majority leader. He was, on paper, the number three member uh, of the Troika that was running the House. But in fact, he was already... Uh, by 2001, the master of the house, uh, and, and in this quite quite bizarre way, uh, you, you know, we see Cheney as the master of the Senate, and in some people's opinion, the the real president of the United States. Well, certainly Tom Delay was the real uh, master of the United States House of Representatives. Yeah, Hastert was never. I can't think Hastert of what, was a figurehead. Yeah, I can't think of anything that Hastert did. I, honestly, <laughs> I'm I'm really ser- serious. I cannot think of one thing that Hastert. Left did to leave an impression on on the American body politic. Not one thing. So uh, yeah, aptly aptly put. Um, it does. So let's get to it because I know there's a lot in the book about the, just the uh, the money. Follow the money. That's the title of the book. Uh, the K Street Project. Let's get into a little sure. bit about uh, Tom Delay and his role in all of that. Well, as soon as Delay came in as majority whip in 1994, or really in 1995, he and another ambitious young Republican, a former House member. Uh, freshman senator, none other than Rick Santorum, Ricky Santorum of, yeah. of Pennsylvania, yeah. embarked on a project called K- what they call innocently named K Street Project. But in fact, the goal was to turn K Street, which is the traditional home of the lobby in Washington, to turn it red, and I mean blazing red. And the, the, the delay and Santorum, through their surrogate, Grover Norquist, the quote-unquote tax reformer, who was an old college buddy of Jack Abramoff, the now disgraced and in, imprisoned in, in lobbyist, who was at the center of the delay and Abramoff scandals. The word was sent out through Norquist that the boss, Boss Tom, wouldn't do business with lobbyists who didn't employ Republicans. They, they didn't want to balance K Street. They wanted K Street to be Republican. And and he kept score, isn't that the whole you idea? Bet he, you he, bet he kept score. Didn't he have like a, a an actual written journal in which he kept this information? Basically, if you weren't, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, that's that's quite right. And and they had weekly meetings in Norquist's office to plot out their K Street strategy. Yeah. And as part of this strategy, an obscure, basically failed Hollywood B picture producer named Jack Abramoff, who'd grown up in Hollywood, where his father was the head of the Diners Club. Uh, but who had achieved minor notoriety uh, in college as the head of the College Young Republicans, in which he, his predecessor had been none other than Carl Rove, and his executive director was none other than the man who would later be described as the right hand of God, Ralph Reed. Uh, Abramoff now 
I seen my opportunities, and I took them, as Boss Plunkett said, and he moved from Hollywood to Washington and became um, the leading lobbyist on K Street. And as everyone was made to know, Tom DeLay's man on K Street. Now, is there some sort of central scandal, something that uh, embodies all this corruption that you can talk about? Is there is there one point in time, any... any uh, Confluence of all these yeah, guys were... confluence, where, where they're meeting together, and it kind of uh, exemplifies what Well, I, I think uh, it's the, the Indian scandal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Abramoff had begun, basically, his, his first big chip was, strange to say, was the, um, uh, the faraway northern Pacific Islands, the Marianas, where he was the lobbyist for the, the garment man, these corrupt garment manufacturers, who wanted to stop Clinton's plans to uh, reform the... The, the garment trade on these islands where they had brothels and paid these poor, mostly Chinese ladies nothing to, to, to sew made-in-the-U.S.A. labels onto garments. Uh, and what? so Abramov started organizing um, uh, trips for congressmen. Amongst these was a, one of my favorite scenes in the book, a trip, uh, a, a Christmas Eve trip or a New Year's Eve trip to the Marianas for Boss Tom and his right-hand man, his, his chief of staff, and get this, his personal minister, which is a guy named Ed Buckham. <laughs> his personal were, minister, did you say? Yeah. His personal minister. They yeah. would begin their mornings on Capitol Hill in Tom Delay's vast set of offices on their prayers, talking to Jesus. Oh, my God. By the way, I, let's frame this. I, you didn't mention the Marianas are American territories, yeah. technically yeah. speaking. That's so right. that, that's, so that's an, why they can yeah. put made on the U.S. That, that's the, the loophole that allows them to do this. Yeah. Okay. So, so Delay arrives there, and, and there to greet him is Willie Tan, the richest guy there, uh, and Jack Abramoff and a band. And then they go have a pig roast, and this is followed in the, the immortal words of a Washington Post account by saying, and afterwards, um, uh, Delay adjourned with Willie Tan, and they went to a cockfight. <laughs> uh, okay, we'll leave that alone. We won't go there. These guys, these guys were just <laughs> unbelievable. After a while, Abramoff just got greedy. He really yeah. got greedy, and he and Delay's former press secretary, a guy named Mike Scanlon, realized that these newly rich Indian tribes, through casino gambling, which had you know come in the mid '80s, were poised. Uh, to pay a lot of money, you know, their, their, their coffers were overflowing, and it's it's a story of rich tribe, poor tribe, the tribes that have made a fortune on casinos. Uh, ironically and sadly, often didn't want their literally cousin tribes across the border in another state to get in the casino gambling business, and so they went to Abamoff to stop them. And so, for example, in Louisiana, you have a very rich tribe, and they look over the border in the East Texas where I grew up, and there's a uh, literally a cousin tribe over there, and who want they, they want to open a casino too. They want to go from being a poor tribe to being a rich tribe. So the rich tribe goes to lobbyist Jack Abramoff, who promises he will put the squeeze on them through the man, through through Boss Tom. And in the course of these shenanigans between 2001 in 2005 or so, in about four years' time, five years' time, Abramoff and Mike Scanlon ran what they called amusingly to themselves the Gimme Fives, in which they brought in at least $82 million, which was split down the middle between these two guys. And, you know, came straight from Indian tribal gambling. And and to shut down the tribes in Texas, they they employed the right-hand of man 
uh, right hand of man, right hand of God, Ralph um, Reed, who would later say he had no idea that the money was coming from Indian tribe, well, certainly not from gambling, but of course he did, because the emails exist. Follow the money, follow the emails, and you'll find he knew perfectly well where the dough was coming from. Uh, So you had a situation here where they brought in uh, a high-profile Christian fundamentalist political figure in the name of Ralph Reed to give them the cover to, to do a fire and brimstone against gambling on the part of the tribes that they did not want to see get a casino, while all, the, all the while getting millions, tens of millions of dollars from the tribes who were already in the gambling business. They would, Reed would come in and okay. he would whip up the Baptist minister mullahs, and they would whip up the flock, and there would be a crusade right. against Indian gambling, and they'd shut down these poor tribes. Right. Now, how are those tribes doing right now, the ones that were shut down? Pretty bad. Yeah. You know, pretty imagine. bad. So, that, for example, one of the tribes is a hitherto-for just impoverished tribe in El Paso, and the Tiguans, and Abramoff gets up for Scanlon, reads the... El Paso newspaper, and there's a story of all these guys in line to get welfare benefits. Mm. And they're chuckling over it. This is the funniest thing they've ever read. They just think it's hilarious. Yeah. I want to get to something, because we are running uh, very low on time here, and that is, Abram Hoff, I assume, is serving federal prison time right now. Am I correct? Is he in prison? Yes, Abram Hoff is in prison, though, on a somewhat unrelated (laughs) scandal. Mm. He, He will soon be sentenced, but I think we can look forward to uh, the press accounts have just come out saying that Buckham, Minister Buckham, yeah. um, w- was offered a plea bargain by the feds. Singing like a canary, I, I guess. Is and, that right? Well, and, Buckham hasn't been singing because he hasn't taken it, but Abramoff is singing. That's what I wanted to get into because so much Correct. of this stuff is still in, in the legal process, to be determined, if you will. Abramoff was telling the, the feds a lot of stuff, but we really d- haven't heard a lot about Abramoff since he started sort of uh, talking to Fitzgerald and some of the other prosecutors. Well, we haven't... Abramoff is in prison. Scanlon, I think, is awaiting prison. He's also turned canary. Um, Buckham has been offered a plea bargain, turned it down. But I think what all of this pretends is, back in May, uh, former leader, former whip, DeLay, told the Houston Chronicle that the Fed should uh, fish or cut bait. Yeah. And I think the answer is the feds are ready to fish. They're, they're not looking for the little ones. Now, they're looking for a big fish named Tom. Yeah. Is there any any idea here, because uh, of the relationship with Rove, that somehow, some way, with all these hundreds of thousands of mil- missing, millions of missing emails from the White House, uh, that somehow Rove could be um, pulled into this? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Carl Rove shares something in common with Jack Abramoff besides... Uh, called Young Republicans. Jack Abramoff's assistant, Susan Ralston, became Carl Rove's assistant. Right. And we now know that there were no less than 475 uh, contacts, whether email or personal visitations, between Jack Abramoff and his associates and the White House. So Carl Rove, who enjoyed Jack's hospitality mightily, including seats at uh, uh, college and, and professional uh, basketball games yeah. um, and and free free meals at Jack's restaurant signatures, which wonder, wonderfully has you know Nixon's pardon, Ford's pardon of Nixon on the wall, so Very. a replica. How how perfect! Well, <laughs> real quick, is there any? And I know we just have a minute here. Do you uh, do we 
any idea that uh, any, um, I should say, speculation as to why Rove left when he did, would this have had any bearing on Rove leaving when he did the investigation and all Well, it, it, certainly, um, it certainly could have. I think the U.S. attorney scandal certainly yeah. could have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I would um, just in, in passing say, if you want to look anywhere in the U.S. attorney scandal, I think it's your California native. I think it's Carol Lamb. I think she was the one they really wanted to, to out. I, I, it does sound like she was. She, she, was, she had the um, Cunningham had investigation, and that was going a lot of really interesting places. Well, um, and, and I'll, just, uh, add, I'll just tell our listeners to follow the money if they want to know more about this story, and to read the book, uh, John Anderson, uh, Follow the Money. Thank you very much for being here on Weekly Signals. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. You guys were great. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar, and this is Weekly Signals.